Dr. Robert Vinoy, Old Testament History, Lecture Number 11. Number one is, quote, its place in history, end quote. Genesis 3 is a key chapter, certainly in the Bible and certainly in all human history. It's the tragic turning point in history because with the fall into sin, sin enters into the created world and distorts all of creation. I think the thing that we often forget, but we need to remember, is that sin is unnatural and it's abnormal. We are so accustomed to it. We don't know any other reality than reality that's been affected by sin. But from Genesis 3 we learn that sin does not belong in the world natively. So then I think that Genesis 3 gives us the answer to the mystery of this strange combination of a wonderful, beautiful universe in so many ways. And yet, at the same time, there is so much sin, misery, suffering, and death that resides in it. Why is that? Genesis 3 explains why. Man has become estranged from God, from himself, and from other people, and from nature because of sin. It's the fall that has produced all these results. Number two is, quote, the details of the fall, end quote. You notice on your outline there are six subpoints there. A to F. A is, quote, the nature of the test, end quote. It was basically a simple test. Will man obey God or not? In other words, will man follow God or his own inclination? God has said, quote, that tree you shall not eat from and the day that you eat you will die." End quote. That was Genesis 2.17. Would man follow that command or his own inclination? It seems to me that's the issue. The taking of the fruit is then, in itself, incidental in a sense. It is important only because it demonstrates man's choice to follow his own inclination and to disobey God. Now, that goes along with what we discussed earlier in connection with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In this volume, Our Reasonable Faith, which is on your bibliography, third of the way down, page 9, Herman Bavink, 1956, page, page 218, this is a partial translation of one of the volumes of Bavink's four-volume Reform Dogmatics. It's not the whole volume, but it's a partial translation of one of those volumes, entitled, Our Reasonable Faith. On page 218, he says, quote, This proscriptive command is usually given the name of a probationary command. Hence, too, it has, in a certain sense, an arbitrary content. Adam and Eve could find no reason why, just now, the eating of this one particular tree was forbidden. In other words, they had to keep the command not because they fathomed it in its reasonable content and understood it, but solely because God had said it. On the basis of his authority, prompted by sheer obedience, out of a pure regard of their duty. That is why, further, the tree whose fruit they might eat was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was the tree which would demonstrate whether man should arbitrarily or, and self-sufficiently, want to determine what was good and what's evil, or whether he would, in this matter, 
permit himself to be holy, led by the command which God had given concerning it, and to keep that, end quote. I think he's correct in that sense, that they were to obey simply because God said it. When they broke that, they showed that they were setting themselves up as their own authority rather than submitting to God's authority. So that was the nature of the test. B is, quote, the serpent, end quote. We must remember that in the fall, it's not just Adam and Eve that are involved. There's also a third party, you might say. There's the serpent. John Murray, in some class notes that are unpublished, terms the serpent, quote, the instrument of temptation, end quote. And you read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, right to start off, quote, Now the serpent's more subtle than any beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said? End quote. Genesis 3.1 has caused a lot of discussion. You have a talking serpent, and it's often made fun of. Is this allegorical, or is it or is it actual historical fact? Was there really a serpent that spoke? I read to you earlier about the Garden of Eden from this book by John Gibson, the Daily Study Bible series on Genesis. I think there's an entry here on page 9. On page 121, he discusses the serpent as much as he did with the Garden of Eden, which, as you recall, which he took simply as parabolic. He does the same thing with the serpent. He says, quote, Where in all this does the serpent fit in? All we're told about him, before he begins to speak, is that he is more subtle than any other wild creature the Lord God had made. This, of course, is fantasy. But it is not as we have surely learned by this time to be denigrated because of that. Animals only speak in fables, but fables contain much wisdom. They are usually comments on the quirks and foibles of human nature. Foxes and wolves and lions and hens, which inhabit them, represent character types or traits that we can easily recognize in ourselves and other people. Cunning, rashness, boastfulness, gullibility, and so on. Here is a typical Jewish one from the medieval period, entitled, quote, On the Advantage of Being a Scholar, end quote. I've chosen it not because it is funny like many other fables, but because it is perhaps not all that far away in what it says from some of what this commentary's been saying, end quote. Here's the story, which is kind of humorous, admittedly. Quote, a fox looked up into a tree, and saw a crow sitting on the topmost branch. The crow looked mighty good to him, for he was hungry. He tried every way he, to get him down, but the wise old crow only leered contemptuously down at him. Foolish crow, said the fox, banteringly. Believe me, you have no reason to be afraid of me. Don't you know that the birds and the beasts will never have to fight again? Haven't you heard the Messiah is coming? If you were a Talmud scholar like me, you'd surely know that the prophet Isaiah has said that when the Messiah comes, the lion shall lie down with the lamb and the fox and with the crow, 
and there shall be peace forevermore. And as he stood there speaking sweetly, the baying of hounds was heard. The fox began to tremble with fright. Foolish fox, croaked the crow, pleasantly from the tree, you have no reason to be afraid, since you're a Talmud scholar, and know what the prophet Isaiah said. True, I know what the prophet Isaiah said, cried the fox, as he slunk into the bushes. But the trouble is, the dogs don't. End quote. We smile and nod when we hear such a fable. But he says, and here's where he gets back to Genesis 3, quote, Why shouldn't the Hebrews of biblical times have had their fables too, and smiled and nodded when the serpent came on the scene in this story? It's not that this story is a mere fable, but it is at this juncture making use of the technique of a fable. It is not unlike Aesop's fables. End quote. So how do we take Genesis 3? Is this a historical fact? I think in the rest of Scripture, again, you compare Scripture with Scripture, you read Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, quote, I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his craftiness, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplest views of Christ, end quote. It seems quite clear that Paul appeals to this as something that actually happened. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is another passage, 1 Timothy 2.13, where, quote, Adam was firstborn, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, as they continue in faith and God's holiness, end quote. Now, it doesn't mention the serpent, but does speak of Eve's being deceived by the serpent. It's an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, the question also can be asked, was this only a serpent? And I think we can legitimately conclude there's more than just the snake involved here. John Murray, and those notes that I referred to earlier, says that he was displaying an intelligence at least comparable to men and, and probably superior to men. Therefore, we are justified in concluding that there was present here an intelligence comparable to and even higher than man. Again, the rest of Scripture seems to make it clear that there is more than simply the snake that's involved. In John 8.44, it's not the snake, but Satan, who is said to be the father of lies. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, you get an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You read Romans 16, 20, quote, The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, end quote. Go back to Genesis three fifteen, where the curse comes on the serpent and on Satan. You read, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, end quote. And the, quote, he, end quote, there is identified, and it's speaking of Satan in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, you read, quote, And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, end quote. So again, I think the rest of Scripture suggests 
that here was a serpent who was speaking, but there was a higher power involved who utilized the serpent to speak through him. I think here is the same sort of situation as you have in Numbers, where God used Balaam's ass to speak his message. And so talking animals admittedly are not something that probably any of us have ever encountered. I think in Genesis 3, in the book of Numbers, you have illustrations of where God used Balaam's ass and Satan used the serpent. Well, I'd say the next phrase maybe was Satan in the form of a serpent. I wouldn't argue with that, but it says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. It seems to categorize the serpent with the other animals as beasts of the field. What is Satan? A spiritual being, presumably a fallen angel. It seems that angels at times can take on human-like forms. Possibly Satan could do something like that too, being a spiritual being. If he did take on the form of a snake, it does seem that you are talking about a snake because you go down to verse 14, quote, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, end quote. It really seems like you are talking about the animal. I think, quote, eat dust, end quote, may well be figurative. Snakes don't do that. But it seems to me it is figurative of this lovely characteristic of snakes to crawl around in the dirt, eat dust in that sense. It does seem, though, to compare him with the other animals. So I'm inclined to think there was an animal there who was used by Satan. I think in the pre-fall situation, I don't know, you can draw much conclusion from that by looking at serpents today, because obviously the serpent was modified, apparently even in the form by the curse. Quote, you are cursed above all cattle, on your belly you shall go. End quote. What's that mean? I don't know if there is some sort of physical change made, and perhaps even beyond that, another characteristic for the animal. Apparently, the serpent was something that stood out among the other animals, so that maybe even Adam wasn't all that surprised when it came and spoke to him. It was more subtle than any beast of the field. The term, quote, subtle, end quote, is the Hebrew word arum. It's used in both a favorable and unfavorable sense, if you look it up elsewhere. In other words, it can be used in the sense of prudent, wise, shrewd, and it can be used in the negative sense of crafty. There is some debate on which is to be preferred here. Some will suggest when it says the serpent is, quote, more subtle than any beast of the field, end quote, the idea is that it was a very intelligent creature in a positive sense. It is used, for example, in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16, quote, A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covers shame, end quote. A, quote, prudent man, end quote, it's the same word as, quote, subtle, end quote, here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. All right, we've got to stop here. That was John Murray's statement, concluding that there was more than simply an animal here, and Satan was involved in speaking through the animal because the intelligence is represented. 
It's not just an animal. There's more than an animal. Just one final comment. I think probably, in spite of this use of the word, where, in a sense of prudent, we are talking about that we are probably still better to take the crafty sort of idea, because in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, it seems quite clear that's the way Paul took it. But, in any sense, this animal seems to have been an animal that was characterized in some way that it stood out among the other animals. Okay, we'll have to stop at this point, and we'll have our exam tomorrow. We'll pick up here on Tuesday next week. This ends Dr. Robert Vinoy's Old Testament History, Lecture Number 11.